Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons. What a blessing to be gathered together as a family and have the experience of singing such a spiritual service. I feel as though we've already felt the presence of the Lord with us here today. And what a glorious thing. I want you all to know that at Harmony Church, we have for a season been praying that the Lord would raise up men. If you look in the Bible, that's one of the things Jesus actually specifically tells you you ought to pray for. Now, I want to point out something. Among the old Baptists, we seem to not have enough elders and enough deacons and enough servants in general. I can only attribute that to the fact that we have not prayed for this as we ought to. Because the Lord said to pray for it, and I don't think He said to pray for it in vain. So I want to encourage all of you to be praying for this. Sometimes we think, well, we just don't have enough elders, and we're a dwindling people, and who, who knows what's going to happen. That's a very faithless way to think about our situation. I submit to you, you cannot make that complaint until you have spent time in prayer diligently inquiring of the Lord to raise up men to serve His people. Maybe if you've done that for a few years in your prayer closet and you don't see any answer to it, maybe then you might have some reason to begin to grumble about it. I don't think so. It's probably an opportunity for you to learn some patience in the matter. But I do believe that what we're witnessing here today is the beginnings, the first fruits, if you will, of an answer to that prayer. And I think we should all be inquiring of God on this matter all the more. We should be asking God to raise up men. The fields are white under harvest, are they not? How are we going to gather this in if we don't have men to do it? And I'm not talking about in an eternal sense. I'm talking about the kingdom of God in the here and now. We need workers for this work, and I believe we're seeing the beginnings of an answer to that prayer. I want to talk to you today about calling. The idea of calling is used frequently in the Bible. It's used in a lot of different senses. Not every calling is the same calling. We believe that Brother Luke has been called to gospel ministry. That is a very particular sort of calling, and few men are called into that work. And we have a service like we're going to have this afternoon, Lord willing, that ordains these men. And we lay hands upon them, affirming that we have seen this gift. We've seen the Lord working in their lives. And there is a particular and unique calling that we believe He is the subject of. And by the way, we're not calling Him. Just to be real clear. Ain't no calling going on here. Brother Dan didn't call Luke to the ministry. None of us elders did that. And when we lay hands on that brother later today, Lord willing, all we're doing is saying we affirm and believe what God has done in this person's life. That's what we're doing. We're simply affirming, we're agreeing with God. Okay? That's That's the place we need to be. But that's not the only sort of calling that's discussed in the Bible. I submit to you that all of God's people are called in some sense... Now we know that they're called in the the Romans 8 sense of that golden chain of redemption, if you will. They're all regenerated. They're all called in that sense. They're given eternal life. That is referred to in the Bible as a calling. 
That's why any of them would have any sort of sensibility of wanting to love God or serve God or believe in God or any of those sorts of things. All of God's people receive that calling. Amen. That's not unique to the ministry. Right. That's unique to the elect. But there's other callings as well. God's people are called unto service. And anyone who is a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ is called into His service. So I want to talk today particularly about this calling that we see. And I'll give you an example of it. Familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are His workmanship. That means God did all the eternal saving, gave you spiritual life, all that stuff. He did that work. Now, being a recipient of that life, having ears to hear, being able to read the Scriptures and have some measure of understanding of them, being in that condition, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. See, there's a purpose in your regeneration. It brings about a change in your person such that you can actually be pleasing to God through the intercessory work of Christ. You have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And now that you have faith, it is part of your reasonable service to exercise that faith in obedience to Jesus Christ. You are called unto that work. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He hath not before ordained that you will absolutely walk in them at all times. Which is the reason you have to be reminded of this thing. He has ordained that you should walk in them. I call this an ought. This is the Bible telling you what you ought to do. God has foreordained that God's people ought to live this way. So if you're a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been called into this service. Now there's aspects of calling I want us to look at. I want to look at Moses... He was an example of someone who was called into service, was he not? Let's look at Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to pull out some examples of calling that are going to demonstrate some principles that are involved in it. Those principles quickly are that it is an individual matter. What God calls you to do may not necessarily be exactly the same thing He's called someone else to do. We're described as a body, right? And ain't none of you walk in here on your nose, Right? That's because different body parts have different functions and they all serve the whole, right? So we're not all called to, it's an individual thing that you're called to do. What God may require of you, He may not require of someone else. Although there are things that He requires of all of us, right? It's not optional. When God calls you to do something, it is not optional. It's not up for debate. Okay, Lord, we're going to talk about this a little bit. Maybe you had this wrong and I can straighten you out on the matter. It doesn't work that way. Now you might say it's optional in this sense. You can disobey God. You can choose not to do what God would have you to do. But you got to do it. You know what I mean? There's an element of this. You, you might say, I know Brother Luke facing uh, his particular calling today and what he's stepping into. There's a sense in the carnal mind where you begin to think, well, is this really something I, I'm going to do? I need to make a decision about this. <laughs> That's the carnal mind. Right. And we all have it. It's really not optional. This is what God wants to be done. 
And it's the same thing with the things that God would have for you to do in your life. It's God's decision, not your decision. It is contrary to your natural mind. I would submit to you that if you are being called of God to do something, in almost every instance, you're going to feel a strong natural inclination to build reasons why you ought not to do it. God equips men for this. Everybody thinks, I don't have what it takes. I understand that feeling, and I agree with the sentiment. I don't have what it takes to fulfill this calling. But there's an element where you can take that observation and stretch it over into beginning to question whether or not God has made the appropriate choice. See what I'm saying? I'm so ill-equipped, God, that surely you've made a mistake in the matter. Resistance is futile. And really it comes back to thy way, not mine, O Lord. What do we find with Moses here? Exodus chapter 3, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold... The bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. This is a miraculous event. And while God is calling you to do things in your life, you may not see a miraculous manifestation of the power and presence of God as a burning bush, but it's a miraculous thing nevertheless. Had you not been resurrected from a state of death in trespasses and in sins, you would be deaf to whatever God is calling you to do. So the very fact that you hear something, you know, we often hear things said like, well, life is a miracle. And that's true. Natural life is a miracle. It requires God's almighty power. But spiritual life is a miracle as well. The very fact that you can hear God calling you, that you have this impression upon your heart that God would have me to do this is a manifestation of a miraculous presence of God within you. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush, and he said, Moses, and he said, here am I. When God is calling you to do something, calling you unto service, the appropriate response is not the uh, Robert De Niro, you talking to me? Are you talking to me? It's not that. It's to say, here I am, Lord. Here am I. God calls, you should say, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready to receive this and hear it. Now that's harder to do than maybe I'm making it out to be, but that's the appropriate response. And he said, draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereupon thou standest is holy ground. This call unto service is a matter of God's sovereign choosing. It's God's holy and sovereign choice to have you serve Him in the way that He would have you serve Him. Moreover, He said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. It could be a fearful thing 
when you're confronting in your own conscience the notion of God wants me to do something. It's been often my experience that when I've had that place before me, I immediately go into a place of trying to figure out, well, I must be misunderstanding this. I must surely... Have you ever done this one? I'm going to confess to you here. Well, brother, I have this thing put on my heart, and I, I really want you to pray for me about that. I'm going to pray about that for a while. Now, that might be a legitimate thing to do in some instances if you're uncertain about the matter. I'm not reigning contempt on that idea, but I'm confessing to you that I have used that at times to forestall something that I knew full well God wanted me to do. Right? It's a matter of God's sovereign choice, and we should take it very seriously. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry. Now, you know all this. He's going to give him the call, and the, here's the stuff you need to go do. We'll skip down a little bit. Moses' response to that is in verse 11. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, it's a good question. And the answer is, you're nothing. Amen. Who did you think you had to be? Right? right? Who would you have to be? You say, well, I'm not fit for this calling. Well, you're right. You're not fit for much of anything, honestly. The question is, does God enable His people? Do you believe God can do things like that? Who am I? Well, I understand this question from a natural standpoint because I spent a little time in the who am I camp. And I think there's a combination of things that could be very unprofitable that you think about. What I mean by that is it could be an excuse to not do what God would have you to do. There's a sort of false humility that can rise up. It's funny how men get strangely humble when it comes to rejecting a spiritual duty. Now, they're on the natural job site, and their boss comes up to them and says, you know what, I think you're doing a good job. We want to give you a raise, and uh, we're going to give you a job, and uh, you're not going to have to work quite as hard, but you're going to have a little more oversight, and we'll give you that raise, and you'll have an extra week of vacation. And they'll be like, I'm fit for that. I've been fit for it for 10 years. I've been waiting for it. You should have recognized this a long time ago. See how hard I've been working? Well, I finally got it, because... I am fit for this job. You better believe it. Now that same brother, when he's approached by someone at church, they say, you know, we really need you to take over this aspect of maintaining the facilities and uh, we need somebody who's going to call people who are not able to come to church and sick. We need some help with that. Oh, now, brother. I don't know about that. I am poor, weak, and worthless, and I am unable. I just don't think I... Wait a minute. Come on now. We need to be careful about being that way when it comes to spiritual responsibilities. And if I'm pointing a finger at you, well, you probably deserve it. But it's coming from someone who has lived it out a time or two, okay? So it's not that I have no experience with this idea. I've played around with foolishness in my life as well. Who am I? The Lord said, 
certainly I will be with thee. <laughs> well, isn't that all you need to know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be with you. How are you going to respond to that with anything other than, oh, okay, good. I guess there no further questions, Your Honor. Isn't that what the response should be? I don't know what the next question could be. I will be with you. Yeah, but how's that going to help? Well, maybe it's because I'm God and I have dominion over all things. It's a pretty simple answer and uh, one we should receive and ponder. I shall be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee when thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt. Ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me to you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me to you. Now that is a very simple statement. It's pretty enigmatic. I've often said I think this might raise more questions if you said it to people than anything else. But quite simply, it's just God has sent me. If we've responded to a call of God in our lives, that's really where it's come from. It's come from God. God has sent me. Whether it's in your service or whether someone's being called to the ministry, you could say, God has sent me. By the way, if you're talking about the matter of ministry, that is a very insufficient and often misused answer. There are many people who say, God has sent me, who have not been sent of God. Now, that's the truth. You can kind of understand why someone might be a little suspicious of the answer, God has sent me, with some of the people that are out there brokering in the name of Christianity, saying, God has sent me. But it's true, nevertheless, of God-called ministers. They're called of God to do this work. And you're not going to have, I suppose at the end of this service, we're going to have some sort of a certificate of ordination that just says we had this service and it commemorates this date. But that document has no authority. And I'm telling you right now, if we got together a presbytery of old Baptist elders and came in here and ordained somebody that God has not called, that paper doesn't make it so. Just like the laying on of hands, signing of that paper is just our way of saying, historically we're documenting the fact that we believe this brother is called of God. God called him. And if we're doing anything right, we're simply agreeing with that fact. That's exactly how it is in your own life. If God's calling you to do something, God has called you to do it. And you should do it on the basis of that authority. Now, the broader world will come out and say, well, how do we know any of these old Baptist preachers have been called of God? I mean, they hadn't had the formal education of a religious institution. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> Not the institutions of the wise and prudent. What we have is the education that was established by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord raises up men. He does it in the context of His church. The church recognizes those gifts, and ultimately, we recognize that call and we affirm it. That's the primitive practice of the church. That's not just some PB opinion. That's the primitive practice of the church. No one would deny that. 
That's a historical fact. It was only much later that we began building these formal institutions of ministry preparation that were extra-ecclesial, right? Not part of the church. They're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. I'm not going to chase that rabbit trail. Chapter 4 of Exodus, we find, And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Well, you're going to encounter that in your life. You encounter it in ministry. I won't belabor this point, but as you go through it, you'll find that the Lord equipped him with some signs to demonstrate that he had been equipped, right? And I believe he equips us with signs as well. They're probably not of the uh, turning water to blood or turning a stick into a snake sort. But I do believe we're given manifestations in our lives that God has called us to do these things. We find an affirmation in our conscience, if nothing else, that when we're serving God, we see that that effort is not in vain. He's given these signs. God says, well, I'm going to give you these signs. And he gives him three. And he's got an objection. Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. He's kind of back to the who am I, right? He's kind of back to this I'm not adequate or worthy. I love the Lord's answer. Whatever it is in your life that you are called to do, There may be some particular thing in your life right now you say, I think the Lord is calling me to do this. It might be service for another. It might be picking up more slack in the church. You might be called to preach and you're just sitting out there suppressing it. That's entirely possible. I don't know what it is. But think about this. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? (laughs) I mean... Or who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, that's the KJV. The DSV, where I paraphrase this, is something along the lines of, who are you talking to here? Do you realize how ridiculous what you're saying is? You see the parental care, though in this of God towards Moses. There's a condescension here from God that's, okay. I mean, I have to consider that God might become a little impatient with this. We find somewhere in this text that he gets angry. For the most part, people are not long on patience. We're quickly made impatient. They do that self-check thing now at Kroger and Walmart. And they don't even have anybody manning the thing, and half the time you ring something and it's not in the system or whatever. It didn't register, and it's all hung up, and now you're just standing there. And you're trying to get somebody's attention to come over and, you know, get this going. And honestly, this happens to me a lot, and I'm probably standing there for 15 seconds. But it's just like, you know, one of those old Warner Brothers cartoons. I can feel just the tension rising, just like (laughs) bubbling and boiling. And I'm like, I got to get out of here. We're not long on patience. And that's a very trivial thing. And I had to wait 15 or 20 seconds and it's driving me nuts. (laughs) I'm thankful God is patient. Are you? 
God's been patient with me. God equips Moses. He says, I'm slow of speech. And God basically says this, it's not a problem. Moses, I'm going to be with you. By the way, this answer is encapsulated in the previous answer of I'm going to be with you, is it not? It's not a problem. God's got this. Well, I just don't understand how God could have it. Probably never will. Maybe just as simple as God is God. And nothing more than that. If you look down in verse 14, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Well, you do see that that happens. He is being a little bit thick on the matter. But I think you see in that, in Moses' life, you had an individual calling or something God was calling Moses to do. It was what he wanted Moses to do. Not necessarily what he wants you to do, but he has something he wants you to do. It's not optional. There was no debating the matter here. Resistance is futile. <laughs> Look at Jonah chapter 1 here. Now this falls into the resistance is futile category here. And this is something I've tried to impress upon God's people over the years. You know, some people look at the moral precepts of the Bible. And they want to kind of regard them as optional or not very important. And I have to admit that God's people are at liberty to sin. You have the liberty in your person to commit sin. I see some furrowed brows out there. How many of you have committed a sin in the last month? I submit for you, Exhibit A, in my case, for the fact that you have sufficient personal liberty to go out and disobey God. That doesn't mean God approves of that. It doesn't mean that's what God wants you to do. It means that you have the reign over your own will in the matter to say, I'm going to go disobey God. And the Bible is an enormous testimony to this fact. People disobeying God in lots of ways. It's why you are regularly exhorted to obedience. Because you need that regular exhortation. Lest you fall away and start following your own carnal mind all the time. So you're at liberty to disobey God. You have the capacity of disobedience. But you don't gain anything from it. That's the deceptive thing. You take the personal sexual ethic that's popular in America today, which is go out and live however you want to. The world is a garden of earthly delights. Go out there and have all the fun you want to. That's what's being preached in the broader society today. And young people might be inclined to say, you know, it sounds like it's an exciting lifestyle. I'm going to go out and do that, and then I'll settle down when I get older. It'll be okay. Everybody's doing it. It'll be fine. And it's as though they think you can do it and get away with it. God's people don't ever get away with it. <laughs> See, this issue of, well, you know, we're eternally saved. Yeah. We'll just go out and sin all we want to. Well, that's Romans 6 if you have that question in your mind. God forbid is what Paul says. That's not the right way to think about God's work on your behalf. But you don't ever get away with it. It visits misery and destruction into your life. Amen. So don't be deceived into thinking, well, I'm going to resist God in this manner and it'll all be okay. There won't be any consequences that come into my life because... It's inevitable. 
That's why I say resistance is futile. It's not just Darth Vader who said that. I'm saying it today when it comes to the matter of God's will for your life. If God is encouraging you to do something in His service, there's literally nothing to be gained from resisting it. Follow God. Obey God. You can't get out of this deal. Jonah kind of thought he could get out of it, though, didn't he? (laughs) Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. That's pretty plain. God said it. We're going to debate the matter? Where are you going to go with it? You're debating against God. Not the best strategy. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. He said, I am out of here. I'm getting out of here. Now, how silly is that? You can't flee from the Lord. This is a very simple precept. I mean, you teach children who understand something about the Lord. You say, God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. Children understand, you know, there's no getting away from God. You can't go into a dark closet. can't go to a faraway country. can't go down, the, you know, diving in the ocean and somehow be out of God's purview. And yet a prophet of God. Think about the ramifications of that. A God-called prophet says, I think I can get away from the Lord. If that doesn't teach you something about the darkness of the old man that dwells in all of us, no matter how exalted your position may be among God's people, the old man can sell you some foolishness. And you can act on it, as Jonah did. It's kind of easy to look at some of these Old Testament characters. Oh, they were so silly. Why would he think that way? Because you've thought that way. You may be thinking that way today. I've thought that way. I've had a first-class seat on the ship headed to Tarshish on more than one occasion. By the way, that first-class reference has meaning in it. The way that opposes serving God is often a way of comfort and ease. It's a way of luxury. It's a way of stuff. And it's going to be a whole lot materially easy to take that path than it is to follow the Lord. But the Lord set out a great wind unto the sea, and there was a mighty tempest. So you know where this goes, right? I mean, he's not going to get away with it. You know the story. They eventually throw him overboard because he admits, yeah, okay, look, this is all happening because of me. And they throw him overboard. You know why that is? Because resistance is futile. But the only reason there is resistance is because what God calls men to do is often utterly contrary to every impulse of the natural mind. They say in the military it's important to know your enemy. You want to know what weapons they're bringing to bear if you're going to have a battle. Well, in the spiritual realm, you need to understand this. This is one of the biggest weapons against you serving God. The natural inclinations of the mind that would tell you, this doesn't really make sense for me to do this because it would be much more profitable for me to do something else. 
You're going to have to fight the natural inclinations of the old man if you're going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. There remains in each and every one of us that man of Romans 7 that will dog you to your dying day, constantly telling you in a thousand different ways that serving God is foolishness. And there's something else you could be doing instead. It might be hitting the golf course. It might, I tell you what, it might be, I need to spend more time with my family. The subtle tricks that play into the minds of men with respect to ways of getting out of God's service, they're very crafty. And they can even be in the realm of things that might seem to be good at times. But if God wants you to do something, you must do it. Resistance is futile. I've preached on this in recent weeks, and it's been on my mind a lot. It's the Lord's Prayer where He says, Thy will be done. That is a very simple phrase, but it is a concept that is incredibly difficult to enter into. You'll spend the rest of your Christian walk trying to enter into the idea of being reconciled with the idea of I want God's will for my life rather than my own will for my life. Because that's not how your natural mind thinks. Your natural mind has designs on this world and they are often contrary to what God would have you to do. Thy way, not mine, O Lord, is really what... That's the song we're talking about here, right? Well, Jonah and Moses, they were called to do certain works of service. And they had some trouble with it. They had a few objections they had to work through. Jonah had to get straightened out. You know, and if you read Jonah, he didn't even want to go to preach to these people. It's kind of amazing. He's like, people of Nineveh? I don't like those people. God's going to have mercy on them? I don't want to do it because I know if I do it, they'll probably repent and you'll have mercy on them. That seems an awful lot like, I don't really want God to have mercy on them. (laughs) That is a really astonishing observation to me from the Scriptures. That a God-called prophet can go do this thing and be effective at it in obedience to God all the while harboring in his natural mind some notion of, I really don't even want to do this. I don't even like these people. I just assume God rained down destruction on them. At the end of it, he's depressed over the matter. Wow. I could probably speak on that for two hours. It just blows my mind. Well, we see that Moses and Jonah had many objections to this idea of what God was going to call them to do. But we have a perfect example in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's quickly look at a few aspects of His example. Matthew chapter 3. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of Him. Skip down a little bit, verse 16. And Jesus, when He was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ did what He was supposed to do. And He received an affirmation from God in the matter. And I believe we likewise receive affirmations in our own conscience when we feel led or called to do something in service to God, 
and we obey God. There's no point in being outside the will of God when you see that immediately after this, he was tempted. If God's calling you into his service, there's going to be some difficulty associated with it. And just deciding to do it is not the end of the matter. It may be the beginning of the matter. That's the first battle you need to win in the war of conscience on this thing. But the more you serve God, the more you're going to draw this sort of attention. In the Second World War, they said, if you're catching flack, you're over the target. If you're obeying God in this world, you're running contrary to the wicked world you're living in. And you're apt to catch some flack in the matter. But Jesus Christ models this as the devil tempts him. And three times in chapter 4, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy as a response to these challenges. You're going to need a sword. That's true not only of a minister, but it's true of God's people. These challenges come into your life. You need acquaintance with the Word of God to answer some of these challenges. And if you're just making up answers on the fly, they're not going to serve you very well. Jesus Christ was familiar with the Scriptures and He gave scriptural answers to the things that He was confronted with. In John chapter 5, we find this. Speaking of doing the Father's work that He was sent to do. But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought more to kill Him. If you do this work, you are going to draw the hostility of the world. It's just all there is to it. If you're called upon to serve the church more, and you're doing it as a regular member of the church, you may find you have some buddies that are like, well, what do you mean you're not going to go play golf with us? I thought we were going to go crappie fish. No, i got to go paint the church. You're going to find some opposition to these things. And ultimately, you're going to find there's people in this world who hate you. Know the enemy. This is out there. It just is what it is. They hated Christ They're going to hate you if you are a little Christ or a follower of Christ. You know what I mean? You're going to catch flack if you're over the target. Look down at verse 20. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth Him all things. He Himself doeth, and He will show Him greater works than these that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom He will. He's raised up His people and given them spiritual life, and He didn't do it for nothing. He has ordained that we ought to walk in good works. We ought to serve Him. You say, well, that just doesn't make sense to me. God's already eternally saved me. What difference does it make? It makes a difference. It makes a difference in the here and now in the lives of God's people. It's encouraging to God's people when they see people stepping up and serving in the church. I can't tell you the measure of encouragement that has been visited into my life by seeing the examples of others who are willing to step up and serve the Lord. Amen. Tremendously helpful to God's people. Say, well, but isn't it really just all about eternal salvation? I mean, those people are going to heaven. What difference does it make? Well, has He not ordained that we should walk in them? And in them is the good works? That's what we should be doing. But he says, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Part of the Lord Jesus Christ's call, and no small part of why he was hated, was because he declared the gospel of the kingdom wherein God is utterly sovereign in the dispensation of his grace. He will have mercy 
upon whom he will have mercy. That is a highly offensive notion. And it will have you hated, not just in the broader pagan world, perhaps even more so among those who are within the domain of professing Christianity. That idea is hated because it says God is God. It's not about what you do with something Christ has done. We declare the finished work of Christ. Now, there's pulpits all over America that will stand up and say, we declare the finished work of Christ, but I'm telling you, their gospel is declaring the unfinished work of Christ. I used to say it this way, it's a Jim Walter home. Up to 90% complete. All you got to do is do the drywall and it's finished. Jim Walter homes were not finished work. You had to do the finished work. That's what the majority of Christianity is preaching today. That's why it can be so broadly accepted, even among people who don't think much about religion at all. Most of those people would still say, well, you ought to, I mean, the people who do good, they ought to be rewarded, and people who do evil, they ought to be put in prison. That sort of works-based religion is kind of endemic to the way man thinks, right? But when you stand up, as Christ did, and you say, it is an utterly sovereign work. Look at verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. That's God doing something without anyone else's involvement whatsoever. Man is the passive beneficiary of God's benevolence in this matter and it's His choosing, period, end of story. That's just all there is to it. That's highly offensive to people who are out there promoting a works-based religion. Well... You might say, how am I going to measure up in all these things? That's Jesus, right? Well, Jesus was perfect. We all affirm that. Now I've got to be just like Jesus? Well, should be as much like Him as we can be, should we not? It's God that equips us. But keep this in mind. God calls us into service. He calls us into service in different ways. He's with us and He's going to equip us with the things we need. Resisting it is futile. This is what God wants you to do. It's not up for debate. Best that you just step in line. If you have a problem with it, maybe you should just be praying, Lord, reconcile me with your will. Thy will be done. Lord, I confess to you, I am not really down with the program here. I don't feel like doing thy will be done. I feel an awful lot like my will be done. And God's will be changed. But, I want you to reconcile me to your will. Thy way, not mine, O Lord. Right? That's how we should think about these things. I'll close on 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9. This is a faithful saying of worthy of all acceptation. That means you don't have the option of disagreeing with this. It is worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. 
Jesus Christ is the Savior of all His elect people. That's eternal salvation. Especially of those that believe, which I would interpret as, as manifest in how they live their lives. Producing the good works that they ought to be producing. You know, you can be someone who is regenerate and be living in rebellion, and there's a sense in which you are not saved. You're certainly not saved in the special sense that is named here. Those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ as a disciple have a special salvation that is over and above the eternal salvation that was given to them by pure grace. They have the salvation of knowing what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and experiencing in their lives this is the truth. I'm living it out and it's proving to me day by day that resistance is futile and God's will is better than mine. That's a very special form of salvation. These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. That's in how you live. It's not just, I just believe the the doctrines of grace, and I don't do nothing. There's a whole lot of doing in that. Conversation is not how you talk, that's how you live. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Now look, this is talking specifically about a minister here, but it's just as applicable to whatever gifts God has given you. Neglect not that gift. You've got things you could be contributing, and God may be placing a burden on your heart right now to contribute in some way, and don't neglect that gift. Thy way, not mine, O Lord. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And I'll close on this. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Paul thought doctrine was important. Doctrine is incredibly important. The moment the church steps away from the idea that doctrine is important, we're just out of the way. By the way, many of your friends and neighbors in other orders out there, if you trace it far enough back, you're going to find they were associated with old Baptists or people who are a whole lot closer to the truth. And at some point they said doctrine is just not that important. Doctrine is important. And part of doctrine is teaching us how we live. It's not just the doctrines of grace. It's also the doctrine of ethics in the Bible and how we're to live. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself. You know, it's funny. I guess Timothy was a God-called minister over a church here, and he wasn't even eternally saved yet. He hadn't done enough works yet, and Paul sure is hoping. If you'll keep pounding away at the drywall, you could finish out that Jim Walter home that I dropped off there at Ephesus. Maybe... You'll get salvation done. That literally makes no sense. And the fact that so many of you are chuckling over it gives me comfort. You've heard this before. There's a salvation in following the Lord. And those who follow the Lord are specially saved over and above the matter of their regeneration. 
And Paul describes it as your reasonable service. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org. This has been Elder Dan Sammons, 